Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I just got the chance to sit down with Nathaniel Calhoun and talk about his interesting life with a real focus on systems change. What is that and how do we encourage it? We start that reflection with some of his memories of Trinidad, then move to growing up in Boston, his work in Africa and the global south, mixing with billionaires in Silicon Valley, and then joining the Edmund Hillary Fellowship and moving to Aotearoa, New Zealand. This was one of those really wide-ranging conversations that I enjoy because we cover a lot of ground. If you enjoy this and haven't listened to Seeds before, then why not subscribe so you can hear more conversations like this? This is a long-form podcast where I'm trying to get down deeper into people's lives to find out what's shaped them to become who they are today. And if you look in the back catalog, you'll see that there's more than 380 other conversations that you might like to listen to as well. Now listen in as I have a conversation with Nathaniel. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Nathaniel Calhoun, who's one of the co-founders of Bioverse and is a strategist behind EcoIndex. Thanks for joining me. Hey, it's a pleasure. Nice to see you, Stephen. I'm really looking forward to this because I know, um, I mean, just that intro, you're involved in some interesting things and quite future focused as well. Um, So I'm really looking forward to finding out um, about what you're doing today. But I'd like to start the conversation by going into the past, looking at somebody's whakapapa or their origins, what's led them to who they are and what they do today. So in your case, can we jump in that time machine and go back to when you were, say, five years old? Where were you living and what was life like for you? Well, at five years old, um, my family had just returned to the United States after two years of living abroad in uh, Trinidad, which is a small Caribbean island, um, pretty low on the holiday makers destination list and pretty, pretty poor off. Um, and my parents were doing a variety of like ministry type social work stuff there. So I came back and uh, with them as a five-year-old inserted into a uh, preschool in a fairly affluent suburb north of Boston. And I did not fit in because I spoke Trinidadian English. I was telling other kids, are you tired of living, man, or what? And uh, <laughs> they actually they actually held me back a year because they said I was, uh, I was not socialized enough to carry on in the U.S. school system. It's wow. amazing that just, you know, you, that uh, you fall behind that system quickly. Uh, uh, partly because it just doesn't recognize, I mean, whatever whatever intelligences I had that were particularly Trinidadian were not being rewarded. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took me, it was, I don't know, six years later, I skipped a grade and caught back up, um, skipped seventh grade. But hmm. I know that the age of five was actually quite tough for me because I was finding suddenly that I was amongst these peers. I didn't fit in. And then I was older than, than them all, you know, I, and kids are pretty different in development and size at that age. So then I spent a good six years uh, ahead developmentally of my peers until I caught until I was caught back up. Um, and I I was just beginning the longest time that I ever spent in one country, being between the ages of five or one place between the ages of five and seventeen, because from seventeen to when I got to New Zealand, I didn't live anywhere for more than two two and a half years. Um, so there was like a period where I got baked in like Boston, New England kind of culture. And I didn't, I wasn't super aware of what that meant, but often it just meant being 
kind of mean and sarcastic and brain focused and, you know, a bit of a jerk and thinking that was normal and thinking <laughs> friendly people couldn't be trusted and weren't sincere. Or stuff like that. Uh, so that was, you know, my cultural, uh, my cultural zone. Um, I want to get into that, but just taking it back, like if you had an accent and you, you know, you're, you were held back for that reason. Do you have strong memories of living in Trinidad? Was that something that's active for you? Because five years old, it's that weird stage, isn't it? Like you're yeah. starting to develop memories, but yeah. Any thoughts on, on that? I have uh, like memories that are so much like slideshows in the literal 80s sense of the word where you've got a carousel of slides and they're projected on the wall in the basement like for friend like yeah I, yeah <laughs> it's it's actually hard for me to know how many of my me my visual memories are actually just reinforced by like photographs that i had um i didn't i actually don't have a lot of like strong narrative based memories even going back to like you know before until i was probably eight or something you know it was uh not too many, just impressions, you know, like a going up a mountain on the back of a bicycle, throwing stones at a snail, like being <laughs> in a swimming pool, you know, stuff like that. But uh, nothing, nothing more uh, revealing. Yeah. No, I'm just curious because that that young age, I think, if we look at development stages between like two and five, it's actually a really important time of a person's life in terms of what they're seeing, what they're doing, their accent, you know, <laughs> like I yeah. moved to New Zealand when I was seven years old and I'm from America originally. I, I kept my accent, even though I moved here at a relatively young age. Um, and so I'm just curious whether there was anything in that early, early years that then maybe influences things later. That was where I was going with it. I mean, the one thing I might say is like, I do think that I really learned the cost of having an accent um very young and i it's not like i then masked by taking on the kind of caricature of a strong boston accent if anything i have been stamping out regional markers in my speech ever since to the point that when i'm overseas you know uh people are often not totally sure they couldn't tell you really where in the states i'm from they'll often be polite and ask if i'm from canada first Mm -hmm. Um, and I spent, you know, I spent a lot of, I don't know how conscious it was at first, but I was definitely looking for the most neutral accent that I had probably because I had paid a high price for having an unofficial accent as a young one. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, we'll see how it plays out. In my case, it was 1983 when we moved to New Zealand to Aotearoa, I was seven. Um, mm -hmm. and I think having an accent in the town where we moved to it was one of those novelty things and it was like oh star wars is the big movie and um you know back to the future and oh there's this kid and he talks like the people on the movie so i wonder if psychologically maybe that was a bit of it for me that i kept it because it was actually a beneficial thing um i don't know it's interesting to yeah, think you about could accents. honestly you could chart it to be you know it'd be a bit of sociological research but i bet there's a the kind of cutoff point when Americans overseas um, went from on balance feeling proud of and playing up their accents to feeling uh, either a bit endangered by or ashamed of and playing down their accents. And yep. I mean, for me, it was either side of, you know, 9-11. I was in the Middle East on either side of that. Um, and 
it definitely changed yeah everything after that i was like i'm from ireland and i just made up a whole other story i was like i'm just not gonna i'm not gonna wear this i'm not gonna wear my country's belligerence and answer to it as a 20 something year old um mm -hmm. whereas before that i did a fair amount of travel as a young person and you know i was totally i was patriotic you know i was pretty proud to be cool and you know i was in the couple countries in europe soon after the iron curtain fell and you know, I had enormous cultural capital and standing. So I, I saw, I was probably the last, there was a whisper of that, that my gen, that people in my generation felt before the dark kind of turn overtook our kind of globalizing political agenda. And ever since then, you know, to be American in some places is, uh, you know, not safe. And mm. so it's less fun to be mm. heard. It's less, it's less, it's less fun to speak loudly and be noticed, mm. you know? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Accents are amazing because they 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 set you apart, you know. But they're yeah. they're signals to other people as well. Like if you hear someone, you automatically make assumptions that oh, if you have that accent, then you must be this way. Because I knew someone with that accent, and they were that way. It's just yeah. really it would. I'm sure there's many PhDs in that topic, right? <laughs> I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So coming back to your life, just thinking about those next, maybe moving into um, high school years, sort of that time. Um, yeah, you mentioned that place that you were living. Maybe describe a bit more about how that was shaping you and, and who you were becoming. Well, the North Shore of Boston is a very white, very privileged place. When I was growing up there, it was still like Boston was the kind of place that for a while, you know, they're they held on to their white supremacy so much they wouldn't think of like Irish or Italian people as white or Jewish people as white, right? They were drawing the narrowest little window around whiteness. And there were real pockets of conservatism. I remember the golf course adjacent to the high school that I went to, like constantly rejecting any Jewish person that that applied to get into it, right? That was actively going on in the like 80s and 90s where I was. And it wasn't like no newspaper story. It was just like, yeah, that's the background of like basic prejudice. And pretty much there's not a lot of diversity around. The diversity that I saw was when my parents would take me overseas on kind of, you know, trips that were supposed to be helpful in a, what would now be considered kind of like a, you know, a colonial or it, it wasn't like a deep systemic change, but it was well-intentioned, you know, travel. Um, that's where I, that would broaden my view up. But then I'd come back to New England and it would be, you know, the, the cult of our city's sports teams and a bunch of kind of old, old money finance folks and, uh, and the culture that they built themselves around like boats and stuff. And it, it never, it never really fit. I was always much less affluent than the people that I was around. Um, like a good couple deciles lower. Live, <laughs> I couldn't live in the same city they did. You know, I'd like, you know, get carpooled into their nice school. Cause I was, I was bright enough to get into their schools on some like, you know, exception, but I didn't live around them. And, uh, and so the whole time that I went from being, you know, like five really until college or something and through college, I was the bottom in the bottom 15% say of like, you know, economic strata of a pretty, pretty privileged set. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was so there's a there's any amount of like exclusion, low key exclusion, bullying, whatever. And then you just in Boston, the way you got tougher was to be like 
very quick, sharp, sarcastic, verbal, like anybody comes and makes jokes at you and you just just tear them up and make everybody laugh at them. Uh, and then eventually you get left alone. Um, so yeah, that was, that was high school. I didn't, I didn't love it uh, at all. Um, and were you aware, I, like some of the points that you're making, is that you speaking now as an adult reflecting back or were you aware of that coming into the school as a 16 or 15 or 17 year old? And, oh, there's something different here in terms of the strata of society, I guess. I was aware of it. I was lucky because the time that I went into high school corresponded with the kind of bloom of like grunge culture, which meant that I could really hide my poverty while remaining stylish because I could go to right. a thrift shop the same as anyone else and dress like a hobo. And that was cool. Um, prior to grunge, it was a lot harder because I was like always in hand-me-downs. I never had the thing, you know, and like, and everybody else at the school was like keeping up with like little kid fashion trends. So I developed a very strong attachment to like kind of alt music culture starting in high school because it provided me with equal footing in terms of the credibility that I could have. You know, I'm like, oh, look, I dress the same. I know more about alternative music or the the, the, the little niches of this culture. And right. so I really hung for like a good 10 years. It was really important to me until I went overseas to try to define myself within these little cultural pockets that were kind of flattening economically flattening um not quite punk I, I just because i didn't like the music but a lot of the punk cultural ethos came through um and i was you know happy to do that happy that there was a a signifier that was kind of like you know giving a middle finger to the like preppy look because preppy is the other thing new england is like you know preppy it's like whatever the, the banana republic you know danny Hill, a lot of those a lot of those like stores you see are aiming for like that yachty prep school new england thing and it was never affordable that look yeah that's really interesting though you know just that yeah i can see where the time the era because you had like that whole nirvana and you know that that early 90s sort of look was definitely not the name brands and and um what you know was that thrift shop sort of look and yeah it's just interesting to think about society, isn't it? And and what what is acceptable and how do you fit in? And I mean, the the movie that I'm thinking of when you're talking, some of the things you're saying is like Goodwill Hunting, right? Because that's sort of set in that <laughs> era or similar, yeah. that character, those characters, I guess, they had that sort of brash, like witty, sarcastic commenting. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 They were definitely like designed to represent a type of working class Boston or Boston suburb that I right. was a few area codes away from and didn't, and probably would have been like, like low key scared of, um, you know, like they, cause they were tougher and then, you right. know, like kind of a, yeah, but, but yes, to the, the sparring, the, 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 the verbal sparring and especially like trying to kind of out, out intellectualize like yeah. you know out reference other people that was remained a very strong um way to establish a pecking order yeah yeah oh that's interesting and when you're getting to the end of high school there uh, did you know like okay what's next was there a natural progression of what you wanted to study or where you wanted to go i you know coming up where i did it was like success meant you got into an ivy league school ideally one of the best of them um and I, I bought into that. 
um, and applied to a bunch of them. And the one that I, I wasn't, I kind of thought I needed to stay on the East coast to get the best education. I didn't have a flattering view of like the, the university options kind of outside of new England. Yeah. Um, and so I got into uh university of Pennsylvania, which is, I guess, outside of new England, technically it was culturally outside of new England. And so I had a few years in Philly. Um, and, uh, actually, you know, I, I made the most of that a hundred percent. Um, there were a lot of, there were a lot of ways that I figured to kind of hack my way through that school, getting a lot more for my, for my dollar than I, than I bargained for. But a lot of it was, it wasn't strictly planned. It was more listening to good advice and seizing opportunities. Um, and it, it kind of came together for me, but it wasn't, I wasn't the kind of kid that's like, oh, this is the career I'm going towards. I know exactly what it is. I'm going to reverse engineer from that. I'm going to be like, da, 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 da. I'm going to take these steps. It was definitely more of a intellectual exploration to find my own like values and and belief system kind of separate from that, that I had grown up in and be able to justify it very thoroughly. Um, mm. And I just kind of had, I just kind of trusted that I'd be able to make my way in the economy on the other side of college but yeah you know turned out i was right but there was a lot of you know it was it was also just that the time it was a little bit easier to come out of college and find your way into some kind of opportunity then than it is now for sure yeah and what era are we talking about was this the pre 9-11 sort of era or was it around that time? i was a junior uh, no, I was a senior year. It was my senior year when I, of, of university. Um, actually, okay. I, I'd submatriculated. So I was kind of getting my master's um, when that happened. Uh, so I graduated with my triple major and master's in like 2001 mm -hmm. um, and then went straight into teaching at high school for like three and a half years, three and a bit years. Okay. And this is kind of taking a, a little side road just for a minute, but you'd mentioned that at five years old, you were in Trinidad and that um, your parents had gone there. Um, I'm just curious, had they gone there to do some service or something? Like it's a relatively poor country. What what had led them to go there? And did that, do you think that affected you as well? Like what they were involved in? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're both Protestant ministers. When I was growing up, my dad was ordained um pretty early on i think when i was like seven or six but they were already in their kind of pathway to ordination um at that point and then i think my mom was ordained when i was in high school um and so they'd be going on these like short-term mission trips like build a school build a church build a pastor's house teach english it was always something for like two weeks or whatever right. in a in a in a poor off country relative to the u.s um and it was those cross-cultural experiences were very transformative especially because the way that we showed up was to like you know embed at a very low social level it wasn't like oh yeah i went to mexico but i was in tijuana in a five-star hotel and i think i saw some poor people at the market it yeah. was where we're just in and amongst like the lower the lower economic strata of a lower economic country nobody's making a big deal out of it everybody's cool um and so it definitely made me, it made me, um, it broadened my circle of empathy and it broadened my sense of the number of different places that I could potentially go. And it definitely made me want to get 
out of the U.S. and be overseas uh, as much as possible, which I very thoroughly have. Yeah, it's interesting because it's similar. You know, I always like to think of links with guests and and I have a similar thing that happened because my parents, they they were both volunteers with the Peace Corps. So that nice. was set up by John F. Kennedy in the 60s. My father joined with the very good reason of not wanting to go to Vietnam, where a whole bunch of his high school friends went and did not return. Um, but my mother speaks Spanish, so she had um, wanted to do some sort of service. And anyway, they met in Chile in South America. They got together. They got married. I came along years later, obviously. And then, um, but we moved back as a family when I was only 11 years old. And we spent mm. six months in Southern Chile and then another six months in Southern Chile. And it definitely, for me, it opened my eyes to mm. many things that at the time, I didn't see in New Zealand or in America. Um, and I think yeah. it shaped me in ways that I didn't, don't even, it's hard to even articulate, you know, it just sort of formed who I've become. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. I have bumped into and been adjacent to Peace Corps a lot when I spent about eight years in West Africa. And especially at the beginning of that, when I didn't have any cultural capital or professional capital, so to speak, I'd interface a lot with Peace Corps people, sometimes go to their parties or do a little road trip with them or something. And yeah. so I got, I've, I've seen a lot of people actually springboard out of careers in Peace Corps to do like extraordinary things, learned, learned so much. Often it was clear that it benefited them more than whatever village they were in, you know, yeah. but the U.S. is pretty clear that that's, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessary. They're not counting the impact or, or or expecting that there be impact to every volunteer's actions beyond the diplomatic goodwill, beyond the cultural exchange, beyond the pipeline of CIA agents, all the rest of it. You know, it's a <laughs> yeah. multifaceted. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I interviewed someone who became one of the world leaders in social enterprise called Dr. James Austin. He's at the mm -hmm. Harvard Business School, and he was a Peace Corps volunteer with my father. And in the interview, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's a really fascinating interview. He's now in his, well, he'd be in his 80s now. Um, anyway, he described the fact that probably the one of the key benefits of that program was for the young people who went age 21, 22, or whatever, to offshore. And then what they did with their lives, not necessarily you know, the, the good that they were doing in the countries. It, it was interesting. It echoes what you're saying. Um, yeah. Yeah. The one thing I'd add to that, that like was universal across Peace Corps is like a lot of the time that you're trying to get entry level jobs in countries that aren't your own, that are difficult um, economically, culturally, whatever. Maybe they're technically hardship posts for the UN or whatever. Um, there's a really big cost for them to hire you and bring you over. And they don't want to do that if they think you're going to quit, if they think you're going to have significant culture shock and bail. And yeah. proving that you can live in a hut and do Peace Corps for two years was basically the way to prove, like, I will take any job and I will be fine. Like, they will all seem like high paying, luxe, cushy jobs to me. Um, and some of my early teaching jobs were similar and they were much better paid than Peace Corps, but they were quite edgy from like a colonial point of view um, and definitely did de-risk me as a hire um, for the rest of my career. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, my father was definitely that case. He was in a little village, fishing village, you know, and <laughs> one room with a bed and not <laughs> not very much. So just thinking back, so you're starting your career, you're, you're teaching. Um, 
what what happened next? Because obviously we're here in New Zealand. It sounds like the international life was something that you ended up in Africa for a while. Yeah, just talk us through the next couple of years. Well, I'll give you the really accelerated view and you can double click on whatever you want with me. <laughs> um, the, the teaching went from the US to Lebanon to Gambia, um, rising in levels of responsibility at, at in my international schools. Um, and it ended because I kind of realized, um, even though I was at, like, you know, the head of the English department at this international school and therefore kind of technically responsible for several hundred young people's literary training. Um, I was like, this is, I could see the maximum amount of impact that I could have if you just fast forwarded my life 40 years, like what it would mean, like, okay, you get like, you know, 120 kids in your classes each year, maybe you're looking after 400 in the upper school. And then I would leave the compound of our very nice for the country private school, and all the other kids were getting abysmal education, uh, and much worse results. And I was like, I'm just reinforcing a layer of like privilege that my students didn't even really need. Like they all had so much money to be able to afford the private school I was at, um, that even if they failed all the classes, they would get, you know, some nepotistic hookup by and large. Um, and I was just like, you know what, I want to find a way to like leverage my concern, my care, my my commitment to some of these issues much more widely. And so I was fortunate to have some connections in, into the kind of uh, technology, digital education space and pivoted into that, um, did some online mentoring, curriculum design, program design out of New York uh, for a couple of years, then started doing some scaling open source technologies for UNICEF, which brought me back to West Africa, East Africa, Southern Africa, and made me comfortable interfacing with a giant bureaucracy behind me with, you know, ministers of education and countries and like, you know, shot me up in my career um, to, you know, who, who people would let me talk to. Um, and after doing that, just with my own tiny consulting company for like a while, um, I got on the radar of uh, kind of executive education slash accelerator incubator in Silicon Valley um, because they could see that I had some skill um, rolling out technologies in very challenging situations. And they wanted somebody to help their startups to be more realistic when they were kind of dreaming how their solutions might be effective in the global South or in low income countries. And so that began like a six, seven year period of spending three to six months a year in Silicon Valley amongst still one more echelon higher of privilege than I had ever been with before. You know, I'd yeah. been with people that had a certain amount of political power in a lot of smaller countries. And then this was like billionaires, you know, this was like, this was billionaires in and out of the room. And I'd be like moderating programs or recruiting faculty and just rubbing shoulders with, you know, a mix of villains and 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 attempted do-gooders and uh and it was very eye-opening and it also it, it kind of brought me more into the private sector brought me into more alignment with what the potential of the private sector is um and and how it it got me over some of my prejudices about it um you know like i i found enough redemptive um enough of a redemptive toolkit in that area that i was like yeah maybe startup maybe i can do startup or help startups as a bigger part of my career. Um, but around that time, I was still going back and forth between either West Africa or Indonesia. Um, 
whole bunch of mixed experiences in that 10 years. And uh, my partner and I were like really wanting more stability, uh, wanting to put down more roots, like uh, places where we could own something. And, and there was enough rule of law to defend it from the people that might want to take it off us. Um, and we had visited New Zealand in 2012 and suspected it might be a place that we wanted to come and uh, had been trying to get in since then. But the uh, immigration policy did not favor um, individuals that were running like several small companies, like none of them reliably profitable. It's like set up for a very different type of entrepreneur. So when the Edmund Hillary Fellowship thing came about in um, we tracked it through Parliament in 2016, we knew like before it was approved that it was coming down the pipeline and we're amongst the first 10 people to apply and got in and came here. Um, yeah. And that's like a, a stopping point to the middle arc that you're asking about because my career starts taking very different turns once I sunk into Aotearoa a little bit more deeply. Cool. Well, let's, let's stop there for a moment. And that's something we share. I think that may even be how we first connected was Edmund Hillary Fellowship. Um, I got involved much later than you, it sounds like. So yeah, that's really interesting though, um, that you were monitoring it to see what it's doing and uh, right from the early days. Um, I'm just really curious because that sounds like, I don't know, it feels almost like you were living or seeing two two worlds, right? Because you're in the the poorest of the poor, the global south, and and then you're flying in to Silicon Valley. You know, the contrast must have been so great. Um, yeah, just maybe talk a little bit more about that. Like, how did you, how did you feel about that, or what what was it like when you would get off a plane and go to meetings with these potentially billionaire type people? I think for the first year or two, I probably had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about it, and maybe a little bit of a kind of ideological prejudice that, like, oh none of these people really knew about cared about or understood the global south and like i should be able to like judge them or like tell them what to do or I, like i had a bit of a i had a bit of a context baked attitude that kept me from making good alliances partnerships like i missed a lot of opportunities because i was still kind of like i was finding it very hard not to be in judgment about a lot of the people that would come and spend $15,000 for a week at a program that I was contributing to or something. Um, and it took me a while to realize that like one of the things that it had going for it was like everybody that could, everybody got in there, like, you know, you pay your ticket and then everybody belongs and everybody's like open to like everyone else's ideas by and large, unless they get, you know, bellicose and polarizing and all the rest of it. And I was like, all right, I don't need to be the one that's kind of like, trying to over categorize the humans in this room because I don't know any of their stories. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, it didn't, the, the excess and the arrogance in Silicon Valley, it's not, it's not great. It's never like, it never felt like home. I was never like, Oh, I'm so happy to land in Silicon Valley. Like I never even like, like as a East coaster, West coast culture always seemed like a, like a intellectually sloppy farce to me, you know, it's like, they're just, well, embrace whatever. It doesn't matter. You've got so much money and free time to do whatever you want. You know, I just, I, I couldn't get comfortable in it. Yeah. Um, but I did, there was enough of a kind of just cutthroat politics of like the, the same kind of cutthroat politics that might exist within UNICEF or 
the New Zealand government exists within an accelerator. And, you know, you just play that and certain people start to respect you. And then you figure out how to capitalize on things. And then everybody's like, oh, all right. Like, you know, you know how to play the game. You're different. But like, here we are. Um, so I don't know. It definitely the list of, of people that I like wouldn't sit down with, wouldn't work from, wouldn't take money from, blah, 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 blah got a lot shorter because I'd be sitting around people having really frank conversations and getting a sense of like, Oh, all right. Like maybe I don't like the industry. This person, this fossil fuel executive works in. I don't, maybe I, maybe I in a different age would have protested his company or something like that. But now here he is trying to understand innovation, trying not to be disrupted, trying to build an alternative energy portfolio, trying to understand how to like monitor these things. And I'm like, all right, there's like, there's a willingness here to like, to try to be part of some of the solutions. Like, is the person renouncing fossil fuels right now? No. But am I willing to like engage with the part of the person that's willing to engage with me? I was like, yeah. And so my notions of like, what's, what's greenwashing, what's like compromise, it all changed, but gradually, how do we accelerate how do we get bigger coalitions from many more sectors engaged in urgent necessity? And how do we break down the beliefs? These like, I guess I would say, I came to believe that like the biggest silos, the super silos don't exist within companies. They exist within our minds as a convenient tool for categorizing other humans. And we're like, oh, the private sector, oh, finance, oh, startup, oh, government, oh, nonprofits. And so many people blithely generalize about those. As if like everything in the nonprofits is the same or everything in government is the same. Really powerful, smart, intelligent people do that. And to me, it's just as stupid as saying like all Catholics do this or all Mexicans do this. It's like there is a huge spread within all of these areas culturally and in terms of capacity, in terms of values and interest. Matt, like there's innovation in all of them. There are young people disrupting older career gatekeepers in every single one of them. And when you realize that that same level of flux and urgency and play and fun is actually happening everywhere in, in economy and in society, you can start to have more fun. You can start to make more meaningful partnerships. And so I got really interested in playing around in those edges of these, the intersection points of these silos that are bad at interacting with each other. Did you find when you first started going in to Silicon Valley and things, were you coming in with a certain attitude? Like, I'm here to tell you how it really is out there? Or or was it something that, because it sounds like it changed over time, maybe your own attitude to the people that you were meeting? I was first brought in as a as a advisor on educational technology. And so I came in with a big point of view that was like, you in Silicon Valley are not designing any relevant educational technologies. Your like fantasies about what AI is going to do in Africa are offensive. They're unrealistic. It's not going to work. We need to like include teachers in the design. I had all this like, in, you know, all these principle, these experience driven design principles that I was like, we need to be doing these things if we're going to make ed tech work. Um, and largely I was, you know, correct in calling out organizations, the ones that I thought were rubbish, don't exist anymore, are kind of case studies of failure. Um, and I started off very much coming in and just kind of ready to put on blast anybody that wanted to get a whole bunch of fanfare for their ed tech idea. But then as I was given more responsibility over areas of the curriculum that had not previously been my expertise, 
governance, security, food systems. I stayed away from health because I truly didn't know anything about it, but like finance, economy, the rest of it, I would have to identify and, and recruit faculty into these areas or speakers into these areas. And so I started to pay a lot more attention to like, all right, where are other change makers doing good enough things that we can bring them in and, and, and expose our, our entrepreneurs to them? Um, and in that process, I it radically broadened. It took me, it, it, it pulled me out of a narrow focus on education and educational technologies, which is wonderful. I never want to go back to that. It's not my thing anymore. Um, and it started opening these beautiful other arenas where I could be I needed to be still uh, exercising good judgment, but without having expertise. So it really ramped up what I was doing as like a generalist and an ambassador and a connector between different folks. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you're in that role, when you're when you're making connections between silos that don't speak to each other, it doesn't serve to have an attitude that's visible anyway. Like you know, if you've got your if you've got your your preconceptions, that's wonderful. Keep them to yourself because ambassadors don't do that, you know? Um, and so I learned a different way of kind of balancing maybe my, any cynicism or burnout that I had with uh, holding open the possibility that these might be the connections that that spark a really meaningful, necessary change. Mm. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Because it's something I've I've been trying to do as well. I like to to use that word silos, you know, that you get put in, you end up talking with people who think the same way, they are believing the same things, they have the same assumptions, and actually breaking those silos out so that you get people moving and mixing and innovating mm -hmm. together. I think there's so much value in that. And one of the things I'm trying to do is to join as many different silos as I can and infiltrate them so that then I can introduce people across the silos and get yeah. some engagement and get some talking and I did this Seeds Impact conference recently and had, um, I think there's about 500 people attended at some point during a day with 100 speakers, 29 topics. And that was underlying it. If you think about it, what was I trying to do? It was like, get us out of our silos of thought so that we can actually engage and learn from other people that we wouldn't necessarily have interacted with. You know, if, if it was our choice, we wouldn't go and listen to this person speaking. So yeah, yeah those are helpful thoughts. Mm. Yeah. And I guess I did a lot of in that organization, everything for a while became very events based for me. And I started doing a lot of public speaking and that was uh, distracting from my more systems based work because it was more fun, better paid, more travel, all this kind of stuff, great exposure. Mm -hmm. um, but it took me a little bit out of the of the doing until COVID just shut down public speaking for multiple years. Um but it was interesting, like I was, though, starting to tire on the events where, you know, you bring everybody together and inevitably, like, well, at least at the ones I was going to, you know, like some small section would be like, oh, we've got it. We're going to solve like, you know, world hunger and we've got this idea. And you're like, OK, it almost got to be like, that's cute. Like, yeah, sure you are. Like, where, what's the follow up? Like, how yeah. do you take a French? Uh, basically, one of the things I tell a lot of startups is like, you don't have a partnership. You think you have a partnership with an organization, but you probably have a work buddy in another company. You have a friendship. And if that person was fired or hired or died or whatever, would your partnership with that company still exist? Or is it just an opportunistic high flow exchange, right? And the vast majority of the time, it's the latter. And to try to take that step from 
I have a human connective based reason that these two organizations are temporarily in contact and then braid that into an enduring institutional embrace is super hard. Mm. And there's lots of systems behind that. Like how do you, how do you optimize in areas that have very high turnover? Cause that's one of the things that became a through line in my, in my aid work career is like turnover killed every project. You'd like train people, it would all be going well. And then like enough people would get like hired away because you train them too well, then they're gone and you have to start all over. And I just saw this happening again and again. And I'm like, right, we're actually pretty poor at knitting together, like institutions, like funders, all these things are too, are unraveled in the same way that our human community is just by like travel and flux and all of the rest of it. Mm-hmm. So I got way more wonky uh, in terms of the like, what are the systems? What mitigates that risk? Like, how do we, how do we land the, that vital sparking fun of the conference of the, of the interchange? How do we land that in something that will last longer than our own affiliations with these institutions? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've been trying to, been trying to help folks out with that, but it's, it's, it's like swimming against the current, you know? Yeah, well, it's it's a big topic. I mean, the the idea of systems change in itself that that's a whole area, isn't it? Like systems themselves, how do you even go about understanding them and then changing them? And one of the things that I've taken heart from recently um, sounds like a silly example, but if you think about it, it's an example of massive change. So you'll remember this too, probably <clears throat> in the 1980s. You'd get on an airplane and you'd sit down, and there were these little tiny places that flipped up. And as a kid, I loved to push down on them, right? And you know yeah. what I'm talking about? It's a little place oh, yeah. where you could have your cigarette and you could stub out the cigarette when you'd finish smoking. It was built into the infrastructure of the airplane. Like yeah. that's social permission, isn't it? Like it's here. And I remember in the 1980s flying in, you know, Pan Am, big giant jets to New Zealand and it was just smoke filled everywhere. Yeah. If you go totally. back in time, people would be in horror at the amount of smoke we all must have breathed in secondary smoke. But the point yeah. is, this is, I, I view it actually as a positive sign that you can have system change because today my kids wouldn't even know what I'm talking about, right? Like they, yeah. they there isn't, it isn't built into the infrastructure of the seat itself that there's mm-hmm. a permission to smoke. It's like we somehow were able to get and I view that as kind of a, a change or a systems change. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it is possible, but it's how do you do that for the big issues, the the ones that you were grappling with probably? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's also the flip side in one sense of what I was talking about, because it's like, how do you disentangle two lobbies that like each other, right? Big tobacco and big aviation had a handshake deal there and it took activism to stamp that out. So that was taking something apart that shouldn't have existed, um, which has its own set of challenges and, and its own set of emotional costs um, that are different sometimes from like, let's build a better airplane or something. You know? Yeah. 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 That's right. Oh, that's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing these thoughts. So you arrive in New Zealand in Aotearoa um, on the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, which there's a number of different cohorts. Which one were you involved in? Number one. Number one, right. So you were right there at the beginning. Was there, how many of you? Was it like 13 or 15 or something? Just under 30. Okay. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. And what 
you know, you'd been to New Zealand before. What was it like coming in through that experience? Because I imagine they had quite a different, well, we, we call it now like the welcome week type of experience. Yeah. Yeah, we still had a, we had a welcome week um, and it was early. So I think everybody was ready to give maximum benefit of the doubt to the organization that it could achieve everything it said it was going to achieve, that it was, you know, sincere and capable in all ways. And so there was like, the vibe was really, uh, hopeful and and people were and people came in with a high degree of hope and were kind of even at the event they're like oh we're all going to work together right we're going to support each other's work and and this is going to be this like really meaningful way that we all come together um but like if say 15 or 20 percent of your group represent the like billionaires or 100 millionaires or whatever and they're investors and then there's kind of this de facto, you're kind of like, okay, so are you the ones that are going to invest in, in all of us who are, who are doing all this change making? Right. Um, is that, that's what kind of, it sounded like was supposed to happen. Um, and that like very, it didn't take long to realize that wasn't probably going to happen. And then it just kept not happening. Um, and so I'm still profoundly grateful that it's like this network where almost everybody will give you at least one phone call. And if you reach out to the right people, that can sometimes spin into lots of phone calls and maybe like a collaboration or or just fascinating conversations. But I think I have yet to see any organization. It's not just EHF. They gave themselves a big challenge. But trying to bring in the extraordinarily affluent who are used to being buffered from requests of themselves um, and putting them around people who are in need. And who feel like, look, you just put me in the community with like somebody who can solve all my problems, like managing expectations in that regard is super tough. I sure. can't point you to a successful place that does it successfully. Even religious communities often striate by wealth levels. There's wealthy churches and there are poor churches. The wealthy churches don't help the poor churches. They're not interested in that. They wouldn't stay wealthy. So I think there's like a, there's a natural tension that exists around that um that i mean man i wish i wish we were the 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 network or the community that could unlock that that could test a few things that you know started unlocking all that pent-up capital that we need to change things immediately um but yeah time will yeah. tell yeah i guess it comes back to those words systems change right I i've been working right now on a legal opinion about how i think foundations you know the ones that sit on hundreds of millions of dollars and invest it very prudently, but mm. not aggressively. I've been doing an opinion on how they should really be thinking more about the impact that they have through their investment, not just how they use the profits that come from the investment. But oh, it's a, yeah. it's hard, you know, like the trustees are sitting there saying, yeah, but we got to preserve the capital. And yeah, it's interesting area. So anyway, yeah. back to your life, <laughs> you, you are now based from New Zealand, we're at kind of opposite ends of the country as we're talking right now. What have you been getting involved in and yeah, what, what's keeping you busy? I'm pretty much all the time focused on biodiversity, efforts to measure, monitor, protect, incentivize biodiversity um, that are using AI and 
other supportive technologies. So like drones with AI or satellites with AI or probably in the future, a little bit of IoT and eDNA stuff with AI. Um, and my time is split between a team here that are building, it's called EcoIndex, and they're building um, uh, a toolkit to express what the biodiversity levels are like right now, compare that to what they would need to be for biodiversity to stop declining, and then to kind of chart out the course of, of reaching that with very concrete, dollarized action guidance, like mm -hmm. install wetland here, Hikatea forest here, and not exactly here, because we know people are allergic to being told what to do on specific parcels of land, but heat map saying you could try this here, here, and here. Like if any of those don't work, let us know. Um, so that's the one team. And then the others, a uh, Brazil-based startup that's working on tropical rainforest conservation, um, trying to realign market incentives for local communities so that they can earn more money um, by gathering non-timber forest products in the Amazon than they can by logging it, knocking it down and running cows all over it. Hmm. So trying to prevent them from turning the Amazon into New Zealand, basically. Right. <laughs> well, it must be quite interesting. You know, these these are projects that have the ability to have substantial change, don't they? You know, like the if if it's done well, then it's going to actually help a lot of people, you know, local councils or governments or companies to be able to implement things that will actually help with solutions to problems that we have. I think so because both are addressing um both are very market informed or market driven interventions and the biggest reason for non action that people make is like oh it's too expensive or like you know I'm I'm just I don't have big margins on my business like I can't do these things so you have to step into the paradigm that that people are using to destroy um, biodiversity and meet them in that paradigm and prov and provide them with new information that makes the market more intelligent so that it can kind of put a more accurate value on on actions on environments whether that's you know ecosystem services or blue green infrastructure or productive conservation like there's a bunch of domains of it but all of them are essentially trying to meet people who stubbornly refuse to exit the market for moral reasons. And you have to go into the market with like a values driven kaupapa and help them find their own way towards less harmful ways of being on the earth. Mm. And just unpack what you mean when we're talking about bi biodiversity in particular. Yeah, it sounds like that's dear to your heart. What what are we talking mm. about when we're we're Yeah. So biodiversity I think is it's fair to say it's it's infinitely complex or near infinitely complex. And you know, you can go look at so many different species. Are you getting into the soil microbiome? Are you getting into macroinvertebrates? Are you getting into epiphytes and mosses and it's so 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 complex. Which is why I've noticed a lot of ecologists in the space, they like to kind of work at the ecosystem level. They'll be like, there's lots of different ecosystem types. Uh, in New Zealand, there's dozens of them, right? Even there's, I think, like 10 that are different types of kahikatea forests, and they're all slightly different based on which trees predominate. And it forms different types of guilds of other, of other creatures at each trophic layer. And so the ecosystem becomes a shorthand for basically saying, 
like a guild of life that you want to avoid wiping out. Um, and, you know, I think given that most species are not charismatic, like blue whales and rhinoceroses and elephants, most of them aren't like that. And you can't mount a beautiful campaign to save like this little skink that rolls around in, in, in Cape Ranga, right? It's just people are like, I don't care. So you have to make it about an ecosystem and you have to express the preciousness or the rareness of the ecosystem. Also, again, appealing to this market mentality that's like, well, is it scarce? Like somehow it has to be scarce. But so you you appeal to that mentality and you describe what's scarce, the value in what's scarce, and then paint it a pathway to honoring and protecting and preserving and potentially restoring more of that ecosystem. Uh, and you can move in the right direction. Um, and it really is the way it's the it's the expedient way to stop mass extinction. And that's really what I'm I'm most interested in, right? Like extinction, we're in the sixth mass extinction. It's heartbreaking and constant and and unrelenting. And I, I it feels urgent to do something about it. Mm. Does it do you have to guard your heart? <laughs> like because it could be get quite depressing. Um, how do you stay focused on the positive signs, I guess? Or or is it important to not be positive in terms of we've got to do something today because otherwise tomorrow won't come my emotional safe space is fury and i'm so angry about all of it but my pragmatism and professional experience have taught me that anger is extraordinarily toxic to connection building and does not ever help so i can drop into the anger now and then have a rant feel furious and that's protecting me from grief which is i'm just not interested in feeling it it's massive i know it's also there but the anger feels more like a fuel i can tap whereas the grief would just lead me to despair and inaction mm. um and again and again i mean like i came to new zealand thinking it was trusting transparency international that it had this like great rule of law that like everything was you know least corrupt country and then you get to see how like councils actually make their decisions about resource consent. And I'm like, oh, wow, I don't know. I don't know how we have pulled that rating. And like, I, I thought we were pure and green and like, no, we're not. And can't swim in the rivers, can't can't keep pesticide off your roof, even though you're gathering rainwater. You know, it's just all those things they can make you. They can they can nibble away at your hope or they can make you furious. And for me, I just re like seek cognitive empowering retreat in like the systemsy stuff i'm like right okay let's just get systematic how do we how do we turn this in a slightly different direction how do we nudge this giant death-eating dump truck in the right direction you know because i i have to believe that it's doable i i, I don't like i think that it's doable mm. and then you know a year like 2023 comes along and you know the climate dashboard starts doing insane things and then it becomes more of a choice to decide that it's doable. You know, mm. I just like choose that for my own mental health. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes get that feeling as well. I'm actually hoping that these recordings that I'm doing, because this will be about episode 381 and I've been doing it for six years. So I've got this database of people talking about life now, you know? So I'm, I'm wondering, I won't be here. You won't be here, but in a hundred years from now, when people are listening back to it and they're hearing what we were worried about and talking about, I'm hopeful and I have to be same reasons as you that we were able to 
change things that the ship did get shifted into this direction um yeah you know for the sake of my children and grandchildren and <laughs> the great grandchildren but i do worry that this is where the cynical side of me comes in is that when i look at my own life frankly i can be very selfish when i look at hmm. my choices and how i make decisions and and look at is it how is it going to affect me and then i think about that for if everybody's thinking that way how do we get that bigger picture which is the storytelling piece right which is this is important we need to do this for a bigger thing than just how much money is in your bank account tomorrow i used to be a lot more bullish on what narrative could do um and now i'm much more bullish on what can we put in your bank account tomorrow you know and i i don't it feels like a it is a moral capitulation but being a pragmatist like whatever that's what pragmatism means it's like i what how many how many moving when vr came about people are like it's the empathy machine we'll put the policymakers on the ground in gaza and they'll understand it's like yeah but they're heavily financially incented to carry on doing what they're doing and so if you don't change the way that the market incentives are that's the religion that's the that's the worshiped thing they will they will go for those margins they will go for that accumulation they will go for that exponential growth and so as much as I would like to say, oh, you can't put a tree, and and we should all be like embracing these other worldviews. Great, absolutely, you go do that. Like I, I do quietly in my own, you know, burned out spiritual core. But my like professional, political, operational self um, encounters people that have zero time for that. Even after you blow their mind with ayahuasca, they'll be back a month later, you know, in a hedge fund. Like it's like they just it won't stick. It won't it won't stay with them because the market incentives are determining what they do. Mm. So I mean, I don't mean to sound such I, I don't even need, think it needs to sound cynical. I think it just sounds cynical because the markets haven't been smart and they haven't put values on things. And so I think we I want to say we we have we are passing through we have passed through the most alarming failure state of markets based human cultural organization and with if we use our technologies to bring a level of awareness to the markets that is so far beyond what they have had um they will realign and the markets will help to reward things that matter people are trying very hard to do that you know with their impact marketplaces and their impact this and that like they're trying very hard. And mm. so I have to believe that we're going to get there. Yeah. No, those are great reflections. Thank you. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting in the future when people look back at this era and see what was motivating people and capitalism and, and basically greed and, and, and what was driving decisions and things. It's, it, it's almost like a form of religion in the sense of, what did that culture think was important, you know, and, and how was it measured and, and who was successful and who was looked yeah. up to. And some of the people that you shook the hands up in, in Silicon Valley are raised up almost like gods themselves. Yeah. Like if, mm -hmm. if only I could become like this transcendent human who now has billions of dollars, um, it's just the wrong um, sort of ethos, I guess. It's getting yeah. pretty deep here, pretty philosophical, but this is fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I like to, I mean, I like to try when I notice I'm like, okay, I'm judging them and I'm, I'm like, even greed, right? Mm. I, 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 pick, I hear that word 
I threw that one in so it's like, what is it? What if what they're acting on is fear? Like, does it help me to see them better if I understand them as fearful? What are they really afraid of? And if the fear explains the greed better than greed on its own, because greed can be kind of cartoonish and just feel like an addiction, whereas fear always seems somewhat logical, right? You're like, I might, I might try to like bring you new data because like, if you're fearful, I should be able to bring you new data and then you're not afraid. But if you're a greedy person, new data isn't going to change that. So I like to, I like to look for the part of the harmful actors that is coming from a place of fear. And because so many societies have been dismantling all their social protections and none of us, it's like so few of us can look and say, well, I'll be fine. My parents will be fine. My loved ones will be fine. We'll be taken care of. We can afford our surgeries. We can afford to have cancer. We can... So few people can say that, right? And and, and, the, and with the costs of it ballooning in different ways, I think, I think fear is driving a lot of it. And mm. yeah, it, it helps me be more compassionate to people if I regard them as probably afraid. Because greedy people, I don't have any compassion for at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Well, just turning the conversation a little bit in a slightly different, maybe more hopeful discussion. One thing I do appreciate about Aotearoa in New Zealand is um, there is some innovative things going on. And if you look at the um, the legal personhood that's been given to nature, it's actually quite an interesting development. If if you So Taranaki Manga, Wanganui River, Te Uruera National Park, because you were talking before about ecosystems and how do you appeal to save the skink? But if you had a bigger group, you know, like this is a forest um, and it's it is quite an interesting development, I think, uh, of in terms of recognizing it. This may go over some people's heads, but legal person, it mm -hmm. means it it kind of exists at law, um, which I've been yeah doing a bit of writing about and thinking about and wondering what that signals for the future as well. When it first got on my radar back in 2015 or 2016, because like most of those environmental legal people in Aotearoa came about right in that period. Um, and then there was a there was like a bit of a, a cascade of them for a few years. India did a bunch. Um, there's a few Central American countries that have done variations on it. Canada yeah. then was like, maybe we can do that for rice. Like, you know, what what can you give legal personhood to? Um at that time, I was deriving a lot of my hope for the future in that legal innovation. Because um, certainly giving corporations legal personhood is the root of a lot of our most of our most sociopathic organizations. Um, you know, human beings and corporations shouldn't have the same legal status because corporations don't die. It's like vampires and people being given the same rights, right? If they're, <laughs> if they're not going to die, then, you know, they can become imbalanced and they can become disproportionately powerful. So in the U S when they're like, Oh yeah, corporations get to have free speech. Citizens United is like, you can, you can chart a real breakdown in democracy in the U S to, to that. And that came from the power of giving legal personhood to something. So if people can't swing back and knock back corporate people, maybe mountains can, maybe rivers can, maybe glaciers can, maybe aquifers can. And I was so bullish. I was like, oh, wow, this is great. We're going to see so much more of this. And then even in this country, why why did it stop there seven years ago? Like there's an aquifer here that people are on the verge of destroying. Why isn't it a legal person? Why, why wasn't that conflict ended 
in why did we have to go through environmental court and have zero games and protecting this this world precious thing like i don't know like it's i i chart what's the what's the organization there's a great environmental legal defense fund there's like a consortium of global lawyers that they like give you your press releases about this trend and it just feels like it for the moment anyway it's tapered off like the reaction to it has mm. been very strong there were some places like detroit was getting their water source they said it's a legal person and then lots of big corporate money came in and, and outspent them and started rolling it back so it's inevitable with a powerful legal legal push that you get a powerful counter push that counter push happened and i haven't seen like the big money show up to push it back again like and it's another place where we need these impact investors to show up and pay money where they're not going to get it back it's like you're not going to get it back like that's not the point we don't we don't need to make you wealthier we need you to give it up like and and backing legal personhood efforts around the world i think is probably the highest leverage legal thing that anybody could do like if there's a fight like that going on the more local the better in your country give it money mm. give it money urgently like all because once there's case law on the wrong side of that now it's twice as expensive to push back against right so like do, what are you waiting for like if there's a legal battleground in your country state municipality that's to do with this if there's an, a community effort trying to get off the ground to like make a little stream a legal person get behind it we need this stuff to have happened seven years ago like a like a wildfire right so i fully believe in it and i'm i'm gutted that it's not all over much faster especially here where where it it has precedent and where hypothetically we like it like why isn't i don't understand why it's not taking off more i i could be done yeah no those are those are good observations i think partly in new zealand it's it's some of those um innovations have been tied with treaty settlements so it's kind of linked in with another complex system that <laughs> would be a whole other podcast. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Uh, this little paper we did um, for the Transnational Environmental Law Journal, I can't remember if I send it to you, but I'll send it over. And it was um, great. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, David and Elizabeth and I were talking about, well, what would the implications be on a practical level for governance if the mountain owns shares in a company? And yeah, it was quite fun to write. I'll put a link in the show notes because people listening might be interested. So thinking, um, yeah, let's let's think about the future. <laughs> um, do, do you feel like you found your place in the world? Like, do you think New Zealand is the place you've lived all over? Is this, you mentioned putting down roots. I know for just to share for my wife and I, it was like, we we were global nomads. We were in Tokyo, we were in London, we were in Sydney. Um, I'd been in Chile, like I said, in America, but we felt like at a certain point we needed to actually stop being pot plants and put down roots <laughs> that grew yeah. deeper. Um, and that's what we did seven years ago when we moved back in 2016. Um, yeah. Any thoughts of where, what the future might hold? Well, it's definitely more, it's more of a home to me than anywhere else in the world. I'm never going back to live in the United States. Um, and there's no other country where I don't even have a second choice lined up. Um, so once I get, I think, I think, I don't know that I probably haven't found yet exactly which town or community to live within in Aotearoa. There may be still a little bit more movement within this country that, that my own family undertakes. Um, 
And once we have, and so like my hope is to find a little bit more of a, you know, it's like looking for community, like looking for a home is fine. So let's say I've found my home, but then like you want to find a community. Um, and so like, if your home is a little bit mobile and mine is, uh, then it's about, it's finding that community. Um, mm, yeah. And so that's, uh, that search is still a little bit open, um, you know, in terms of like actual place-based, like dinner party, like, you know, just chilling out sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there could be scenarios in which, in which like if things went really 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 sideways here maybe i would feel like it wasn't a fit but it's very hard to imagine leaving i like to, yeah. choosing a different primary home i mean i do i do love so much about the place um and i'm just trying to learn more and contribute more and belong more and you know uh yeah. i figure that'll just keep deepening and i'll just keep being more it'll be harder and harder to budge less of a pot plant, more of a, more of a tree, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's quite a good picture. My mother actually gave me that picture. She said that she'd always felt like she was a pot plant and, um, but it's important to be able to put down roots too. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're here. So there you go. I really appreciate the discussion that we've had. We've bounced around a lot of different topics uh, and I really enjoyed hearing about your early childhood and, you know, what it was like seeing, or growing up in a family that was outward focused it sounds to mm. me like that actually shaped you quite a lot in terms of being open to living offshore and and moving overseas and being aware of poverty and and so it's always interesting to think about those early childhood and then how does it impact and for me as a parent as well like what experiences am I giving my children so that they don't grow up in a little silo of white new zealand you know um, yeah yeah so it's good yeah. good reminder so thank you so much for your time really appreciate it we'll put some links in the show notes for people to be able to click and find out about those two initiatives and anything mm -hmm. else you want to send me um but yeah thanks uh, for joining me on seeds i really appreciate the chance to talk with you it's been a pleasure thanks for your, your great conversation and questions well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nathaniel. For me, there was lots of highlights. I really enjoyed his honesty sharing about growing up, moving to the global south, his reflections on going back to Silicon Valley, and then what he's doing today and thinking about systems change, rights of nature. I really enjoyed all those rabbit holes that we were able to go down. If you like this, then why not check out the other episodes in the back catalog? And there's heaps of information at theseeds.nz. Until next time, kakiteano!